redefining narratives and shifting perspectives. This is Story Noir. Hello and welcome to chapter nine of the Story Noir podcast. My name is Opal and I'm excited to be chatting with you today. It's just me. I don't have any special guests. And so I wanted to take today to let you know a little bit about something that is near and dear to my heart. I am a trained doula. I completed Sumi's Touch doula training uh, based in Oakland, California, um, actually earlier this month. So August has been super packed. I spent the first week in August um, in community with my doula sisters, people who have been part of Sumi's ecosystem for as as much as 10 years. Um, I've known about Sumi for about three years at this point. I came into working as a doula. Um, I can give a little bit about about that story actually um, throughout the episode, but Sumi has created this ecosystem of birth workers and practitioners and spiritual amazing leaders of the world, I must say. Um, and has trained hundreds of thousands of people, uh, both virtually and in person. And so I was part of the all black cohort, uh, in 2022. And so from about February all the way to August of last year, every Sunday and then every Wednesday, and then ad hoc throughout different events, I would commune with my doula siblings and we would get together and just talk about all the things that we were learning. We talked about the history of birth work as it relates to us as Black femme people. We talked about the ways that geographical context matters when talking about birth work because here in California, legislation happens with regards to reproductive freedoms. Uh, and then my my siblings across state lines could have a whole other policy that's relevant in their state. And so not only is there the global context, but I would say that there's the national context as well. So learning all these things and meeting people from different ages, backgrounds, walks of life and otherwise was just a beautiful experience. And then in November, specifically over Thanksgiving, I was able to attend the birth of a really close friend of mine. Her baby came Earthside and so that was the first birth that I witnessed. And so ever since the start of the new year this year, I was part of an organization where I co-facilitated birth classes for 10 weeks for a cohort of families that were based in the Bay Area and Los Angeles, all of whom were seeking cost-effective care and education around their pregnancies. And what was really great was that the cohort came from different experiences. Some people this was their rainbow baby, some people this was their second child, some people, some families were having twins, some people were having their first time pregnancies, and so all walks of life, but everybody's story was just so beautiful, and the fact that they all came into the cohort as strangers and left as friends, I see them talking online, which is really, really great, was really, really amazing, and so after the 10-week course ended, we, as the doulas, uh, were assigned to two of the families to be their primary doula, and so we were able to 
figure out how we wanted to set up our own practice while under um, the guise of this nonprofit organization. But it was really great for us to learn different skills and management and tasks and doing things like prenatal appointments and then of course showing up to the birth and then coordinating with our backup. So a lot of amazing hands-on activities, I would say, <laughs> um, because what was really amazing was the fact that we were able to go to some baby showers as well. So we really, as doulas and birth workers, have integrated ourselves into this family because we get to see little bun come earthside and it's just a beautiful thing. And so I know for me, my relationship to birth, as I've been quite transparent on the podcast about, is the fact that I was in foster care. And so my biological parents, <laughs> safe to say that they did not have a doula or, you know, a birth team that was as dedicated as I have been to some of the families. And so it's really complex for me a lot of times cathartic when I when I reflect on it, especially in times like right now. And so I know that the model of care that I base my practice on really is community rooted because it's based on my skills, my training, and then my own interpersonal experiences. So this has been really beautiful. And shout out to Simi's Touch Doula Training parts one and two because I have officially as I said, in the first week of August, I officially completed my training. And so if you were doing the calculations, you would know that that was over 18 months. These past 18 months have been extremely transformative. And so that was just a mark on my, just my heart of hearts, because I'm really proud to say that I feel I'm very confident to be a trained doula. And so what does that mean? I think being a trained doula specifically really just depends on the person and their practice. I consider myself a full spectrum doula. And so what that means for me, and I want to emphasize with a very heavy, thick, dark asterisk, for me, this means that I support families when as early as when they find out that they're pregnant and then, you know, up until birth and then postpartum and otherwise. So I really would say I would like to integrate myself into the family for you know, as long as needed, um, if that's lifelong, that's beautiful. If it's only up until the birth, that's also okay. And so my specialty when it comes to my birth practice, and again, why I want to emphasize on a full spectrum is because full spectrum doesn't just relate to that of birth. It isn't just the prenatal birth and then postpartum because of the element of foster care and adoption that I apply to my practice. And so my practice is aptly named Eponymous Birth Collective. And with Eponymous, I provide services for families that are considering adoption, you know, really asking them the why and, you know, where that motivation comes from. Because again, on the full spectrum of family separation, respectively. Um, there are a lot of reasons. And again, there's no one size fits all. And so working with families to set them up for success, really leaning in um, on, you could say trauma informed because adoption is inherently a trauma. And so I am trauma informed in that regard. And then also creating a community and space for adult adoptees. And so also in the beginning of 2023, I started 
to become involved with an organization called Pact Adopt. They're based in the Bay Area, specifically Emeryville, and they host monthly meetups, um, both virtually and in person, but the support group is really where the bulk of really great conversation and serious thought comes through, whereas when we meet in person, oftentimes um, ad hoc, you know, in um, various places around Oakland, it's been really great, but it's been more of a lighthearted fun time. But on group, we meet uh, typically the first Tuesday of the month, and we just talk about, you know, we, we shoot the shit, essentially. And it's like, what's going on in adopting news? Sometimes it is all giggles, and then sometimes it is all tears, just because um, I would say specifically around the holidays is when we come a, become a little bit more stressed out. Shout out to the adoptees that know what it is like to go home for the holidays. Ooh, I could do a whole episode on that one. But that is essentially trauma-informed and embodying that of what it is like to understand what life is like as an adoptee. Because the way that I navigate, notwithstanding the fact that I am an adult, my adoption does inform you know, my viewpoint and my experiences. And so with eponymous that offering, I think I like to over index on because a lot of people within the birth work space tend to focus on, again, prenatal birth and postpartum, which is a wonderful element. But for me, my postpartum offering really is <laughs> postpartum. Like it doesn't matter necessarily how old you are. If you are within the foster care adoption, family separation ecosystem, if you know, you know. And so all of that context being, why am I here as a birth worker today? And what are we going to talk about? I'm glad you asked. So today as it stands, it is Tuesday, August 29th. And so we're in the middle of Black Breastfeeding Week. And Black Breastfeeding Week was created to highlight the disparities in breastfeeding rates among Black women and raise awareness to challenges unique to the Black community. That was a result that I pulled from Google when I looked up Black Breastfeeding Week. I definitely implore you to do your research, um, but how does Black Breastfeeding Week, something that has been established, it was established in the 21st century, but Black folks and body feeding, as you will hear me call it respectively, because breastfeeding is one element of it, but to breastfeed, you have to use your entire body. It's a very emotional experience. It's the mind, body, and the soul. And so that's why I prefer to use the term uh, black body feeding. And so um, the history of black women and body feeding. Wet nursing is a uniquely gendered kind of exploitation and under enslavement, it represented the point at which the exploitation of enslaved women as workers and as reproducers literally intersected. Feeding another woman's child with one's own milk constituted a form of labor, but it was work that could only be undertaken by lactating women who had borne their own children. As a form of exploitation specific to enslaved mothers, Enforced wet nursing constituted a distinct aspect of enslaved women's commodification. The evocative image of an enslaved wet nurse carefully holding a white child to her breast 
in order to provide sustenance through her own milk, therefore holds much resonance for historians interested in gender, slavery, and relationships between black and white women in the antebellum South, those interested being myself. Wet nursing bonds women together across the racial divide, and white women also sometimes wet nursed enslaved infants. I'm not sure how often that was. Yet ultimately, white women used wet nursing as a tool to manipulate enslaved women's motherhood for slaveholders' own ends. So that's a little bit of history on wet nursing and the ways in which black women's bodies were literally commodified, just one of the many, many elements. And so another excerpt I want to give you a little bit of context on is comes from Killing the Black Body, Race, rep Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty written by Dorothy Roberts. This is a staple within the black birth worker community. I definitely encourage all people, even those who haven't necessarily done too much um, Africana studies, this book is really, really relevant. Even though it was written in the 90s, I think it really plays true to what we're seeing today and to show the fact that history repeats itself. And so I will give, you know, a little bit of warning that this is talking about things, real life things. This is nonfiction. And so understand that as hard as it is for you to hear this, it is a difficult for me as a black woman to have to decimate this information knowing that it has directly affected people who you know look like me and so i'll give you that warning that through the discomfort i encourage you to learn and listen with an open heart and mind and so it is a little bit long but um if you want to read along it starts on page 22 chapter one reproduction in bondage. When Rose Williams was 16 years old, her master sent her to live in a cabin with a male slave named Rufus. It did not matter that Rose disliked Rufus because he a bully. At first, Rose thought that her role was just to perform household chores for Rufus and a few other slaves. But she learned the true nature of her assignment when Rufus crawled into her bunk one night and said, I says, what you means, you fool nigga? He say for me to hush the mouth. This my bunk too, he say. When Rose fended off Rufus's sexual advances with a poker, she was reported to Master Hawkins. Hawkins made it clear that she had no choice in the matter. The next day, the master called me and tell me, woman, I paid big money for you and I done that for the cause because I wants you to raise me chillings. I put you to live with Rufus for that purpose. Now, if you don't want whipping at the stake, you do what I want. Rose reluctantly ascended to her master's demands. I think about masters buying me off the, off the block and saving me from being separated from my folks, about being whipped at the stake. There it am. What am I to do? So I decide to do as, he, as a master wish, and so I yields. And so essentially what that means is that she yielded to what her master was implying, which was... I essentially got you so you can literally be bred. Hmm. The story of control of black reproduction begins with the experience of enslaved women like Rose Williams. Black procreation helped sustain slavery, giving slave masters an economic incentive to govern black women's reproductive lives. Very interesting how that juxtaposes to today. 
Enslaved women's childbearing replenished the enslaved labor force. Black women bore children who belonged to the slave owner from the moment of their conception. This feature of slavery made control of reproduction a central aspect of white subjugation of African people in the Americas. It marked black women from the beginning as subjects whose decisions about reproduction should be subject to social regulation rather than to their own will. For enslaved women, procreation had little to do with liberty. To the contrary, black women's childbearing and bondage was largely a product of oppression rather than an expression of self-definition and personhood, much like today. As Henry Louis Gates Jr. writes about the autobiography of a slave woman, Harriet Jacobs, it charts in vivid detail precisely how the shape of her life and the choices she makes are defined by her reduction to a sexual object, an object to be raped, bred, or abused. Even when whites do not interfere in reproduction so directly, this aspect of slave women, enslaved women's lives was dictated by their master's economic stake in their labor. The brutal domination of slave women's, enslaved women's procreation laid the foundation for centuries of reproductive regulation that continues today. All of these violations were sanctioned by law. I'm going to repeat that again. All of these violations were sanctioned by law. Racism created for white slave owners the possibility of unrestrained reproductive control. The social order established by powerful white men was founded on two inseparable ingredients, the dehumanization of Africans on the basis of race and the control of women's sexuality and reproduction. The American legal system is rooted in this monstrous combination of racial and gender domination. Say it louder for the people in the back. One of America's first laws concerned the status of children born to slave mothers and fathered by white men. A 1662 Virginia statute made these children slaves. Slave master's control of black women's reproductive reproduction illustrates better than any other example I know the importance of reproductive liberty to women's equality. Every indignity that comes from the denial of reproductive autonomy can be found in slave women's lives. The harms of treating women's wombs as procreative vessels, of policies that pit a mother's welfare against that of her unborn child, and of government attempts to manipulate women's children-bearing decisions through threats and bribes. Studying the control of enslaved women's reproduction then not only discloses the origins of Black people's subjugation in America, it also bears witness to the horrible potential threatened by official denial of reproductive liberty. The essence of Black women's experience during slavery was, brutal, was the brutal denial of autonomy over reproduction. Enslaved women were commercially valuable to their masters, not only for their labor, but also for their ability to produce more enslaved people. Children, might I add. The law made enslaved women's children the property of the slave owner. White masters, therefore, could increase their wealth by controlling their slaves' reproductive capacity. With owners expecting natural multiplication to generate as much to, as 5 to 6% of their profit, they had a strong incentive to maximize their slaves' fertility. An anonymous planter's calculations made the point. I own a woman who cost me $400 when a girl in 1827. And I actually am curious to know how much $400 in 
1827 would be today. So let's find out. All right, the results are in. According to in2013dollars.com, um, the value from $400 from 1827 to 2023 is equivalent in purchasing power to about $12,351.15 today, an increase of about $11,951.15 over 197 years. That means today's prices are about 30.88 times as high as average prices since 1827, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Price Index. Let that sit for a second. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm gonna restart the sentence and continue on. I own a woman who cost me $400 and for the sake of this, $12,351.15 when a girl in 1827 admit that she made me nothing only worth her vitricles or victuals and clothing she now has three children worth over three thousand dollars okay so that begs the other question of how much is three thousand dollars back then versus today and that answer is going to make me sick to my stomach $3,000 in 1827 is equivalent in purchasing power to about $91,707.30 today, an increase of $88,707.30 over 196 years. Whew. Okay, so she now has three children worth over $3,000. I would not this night touch $700 for her. Her oldest boy is worth $1,250 cash, and I can get it. How smug. And so again, for the purposes of the conversation, let's look up just how much $1,250 was back then versus today. $1,250 in 1827 is equivalent in purchasing power to about $38,211 and 38 cents today, an increase of $36,961.38 over 196 years. Sit on that one for a second. Another report confirmed that a breeding woman is worth from one-sixth to one-fourth more than one that does not breed. Slave births and deaths were not recorded in the family Bible, but in the slaveholder's business ledger. Not in the family Bible, but in the slaveholder's business ledger. The ban on importing slaves after 1808 and the steady inflation in their price made enslaved women's childbearing even more valuable. Oh, she's sorry. Uh, female slaves provided their masters with a ready future supply of chattel. Black procreation not only benefited each enslaved person's particular owner, it also more globally sustained the entire system of enslavement. Unlike most slave societies in the New World, which relied on the massive importation of Africans, the slave population in the United States and otherwise maintained itself through reproduction. As Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner deplored, 
Too well I know the vitality of slavery with its infinite capacity of propagation. Do you know what that means? Yeah. Here lies one of slavery's most odious features. It forced its victims to perpetuate the very institution that subjugated them by bearing children who were born the property of their masters. To be sure, female slaves were primary laborers and their capacity to reproduce did not diminish their master's interest in their work. As we will see below, when a slave female's role as worker conflicted with that of childbearer, concern for high productivity often outweighed concern for high fertility. Slaveholders were willing to overwork pregnant slaves at the expense of health of the health of the, both mother and child. But even if, as some historians contend, slave, childbearing, and rearing were not amongst slave owners' top priorities, there is convincing evidence that whites placed a premium on slave fertility and took steps to increase it. Indeed, it seems incredible that whites, who dominated every aspect of their slaves' existence, so they thought, would neglect the attribute and attribute that, sorry, <laughs> would neglect the attribute that produced their most vital resource, their workforce. Nor can we ignore the sentiments of slaveholders like none other than Thomas Jefferson, who instructed his plantation manager in 1820. I consider a woman who brings a child every two years as more profitable than the best man on the farm. Slaveholders who overworked their pregnant slaves operated under general ignorance about prenatal health, combined with stereotypes about black women's natural propensity for childbirth. They were not fully aware of the extent of the damage their labor practices inflicted on their long-term human investment. A more realistic assessment is that because female slaves served as both producers and reproducers, their masters tried to maximize both capacities as much as possible, with labor considerations often taking precedence. Even then, the grueling demands of field work constrained slave women's experience of pregnancy and child rearing. Every aspect of slave women's reproductive lives was dictated by the economic interests of their white slave masters. And that ends on page 25. And again, this is Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty by Dorothy Roberts. Let's sit on that because <laughs> as I was reading it, obviously I felt a little bit activated, more than a little bit. Um, but I made a lot of ties into what's going on today and the current labor force that we find ourselves in because again, it's not a far cry from we're not that far away from that of 1827 okay believe it or or not <laughs> we're not that far away and so i can see the ways in which over the overproduction of labor obviously exploitation and i'm talking about as this relates to pregnancy and labor not necessarily not just enslavement because again that is the fabric of you know the practices that we see today but just the mere juxtaposition between overworking pregnant people and labor in order to sustain themselves in this, you know, capitalistic white supremacist society. And so we see the ways that black pregnant people were literally the fabric of 
this. The fact that, oh, it, it just, it gets me a little bit emotional. But, um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll reread a couple of things that I highlighted here. Um, to be sure, enslaved women were primary laborers and their capacity to reproduce did not diminish their master's interest in their work. As we will see below, when a female slave's role as worker conflicted with that of childbearer, concern for high productivity often outweighed concern for high fertility. <sighs> and then, again, uh, and another one that I want to um, go back to is, um, let's see. They were not fully aware of the extent of the damage their labor practices inflicted on their long-term human investment. Mm. A more realistic assessment is that because enslaved women and served as both producers and reproducers. And when seeing those two juxtaposed, it just did not sit well in my spirit because it, I, it made sense. At first I was like, what? And then it clicked. <laughs> Their masters tried to maximize both capacities as much as possible with labor considerations often taking precedence. Even then, the grueling demands of work, in this specific instance, field work, but again, how many people do we know, how many pregnant black women do we know that are overworking themselves with little to no labor protections? Because I know of too many instances where, oh, last week I had a baby and now I'm back at work. And it's like, what? <sighs> okay, so, but again, that's not the fault of the person that just gave birth. It's the system that we live in. And so even then, the grueling demands of work constrained enslaved women's experience of pregnancy and child rearing. Every aspect of enslaved women's reproductive lives was dictated by the economic interest of their white slave masters. And again, in this instance, that of your boss worrying that, hey, when am I going to make this pregnancy announcement? Because I'm up for a promotion right now and I'm not sure if they if when they find out that I'm pregnant, they're going to still want to give it to me because they're going to be like, oh, you're going to be out for six weeks and not be able to, to come to work. And I don't know if you should be director or VP because, you know, are you ever actually going to come back to work? And just all these countless stories that, <laughs> that are often just pushed around in the community. And so it's just really disheartening to hear. And so I'll continue to the conversation around black body feeding week and the importance of it but um just this little piece of historical context is important and so I've seen you know narratives online of like why are we doing all these different weeks and bringing highlight to this and that and we're making all these holidays it's because we need to bring awareness this isn't anything new if anything there's history attached to each and everything that you see and so Black Body Feeding Week, again, it's it's a reclamation of a history that has been stolen. And again, everything I just said was like, no, didn't even scratch the surface of the complexities of, you know, the ways that black women and black breastfeeding people have to, you know, the current eco the economic interests of the world. Um, I remember if it wasn't last year or sometime, maybe in 2021, there was a formula shortage and then the conversation around why don't you just breastfeed came to be and <laughs> i i just sat and i watched the discourse because breast body feeding again 
is not an easy task to do. Um, I'd love to bring on an expert and have them talk more about it in earnest because yeah, I'll tell you here right now, body feeding is not an easy thing to do. And so people use formula, the the formula debate, (laughs) I'd like to call it, um, there's a lot of nuance involved with it. And so, um, we can get into that another episode. However, uh, thank you for listening today. Um, I really like talking candidly about, you know, birth education and whatnot. So look out for more of that content. But for now, I'll catch you in the next one. Um, as men, the text mentioned will be in the chat. And so, yeah, let me know. Hit me up on Instagram if something landed with you. But I'll talk to you soon. Much love.